Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Motley Fool Income Investor James Early and for Million Dollar Portfolio Ron Gross. Gentlemen, good to see you as always. Howdy. How are you doing, Chris? Chris? We have got a new iPad from Apple and a new coffee maker from Starbucks. And as always, we've got a few stocks on our radar, but we will begin with the big macro. The U.S. added 227,000 jobs in February. Unemployment stayed at 8.3%. Also, Greece said on Friday it had finalized a debt restructuring deal with private lenders that will clear the way for bailout money from the EU and the IMF. James Early, I'll start with you. What uh, What's the takeaway for investors in terms of the big macro? Uh, Chris, t- to me, it's Greece. The private sector was previously holding these bonds that were worth probably 25 cents to the dollar, and now they're officially holding bonds worth 25 cents to the dollar. And that might not seem like a big deal, but from Greece's perspective, now they officially owe less. So they're they're not as demoralized. They can, they can maybe dig out of their mess, but the problem is Greece is, is still Greece. They're supposed to cut their, their debt drastically by 2020, and apparently all of these bonds don't start trading until Monday. They're, they're already on the gray market, whatever that is, uh, trading at, at much lower value. So investors don't really believe uh, this is going to be a huge help. Ron, what do you think? I think one of the goals here is to isolate Greece so we don't have that contagion that's spread into uh, to other European nations, which is, is very important from, from Korea, so we don't have a, a full meltdown. Our markets here are reacting to that. Markets have been strong lately. So if there's one thing that's good, I think uh, that is. Here on the, uh, the domestic front, the job numbers continue to look really good. Uh, three consecutive months of job growth. Mm-hmm. Um, the December and January numbers were revised upward. Yeah. For weeks and months, I was negative on the unemployment picture. It's it's just You're fair for me to it's it, it's fair for me to turn when when the data shows the turn, and uh, so I'm I'm optimistic. Yeah, Joe, uh, as as Ron indicated, third straight month of. 200,000-plus jobs per month. So, um, what do you think? Have we turned a corner on the job market? Yeah, I think so. I think the bigger picture takeaway here is that you can't be a wait-and-see investor on this kind of thing. No offense. Um, (laughs) A lot of people... I was fully invested the whole time. I was just worried. All right. Well, uh, with Greece, back in October, November, especially early October, people were absolutely freaking out about sovereign debt crisis. But in hindsight, that was a phenomenal time to buy. Stocks are up 25%. And this past week also marked the three-year anniversary of the low in the S&P in the financial crisis. If you'd bought then, you would have doubled your return, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal return in three years. And it just, again, goes to show that if you're that guy who's like, no, I got to wait. I want to see how things shake out. I mean, you can do that, but you will always miss the big run-ups and always be like, And you'll know when to tell us to, to jump in, though, right? Sure, well, you listen <laughs> to your show, low, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, Apple unveiled its new iPad this week. Uh, the features include retina display technology, a super sharp resolution, and support for 4G. Uh, Joe, I'll start with you. Uh, a, a lot of threads to pull here. This is a, a long-time Motley Fool recommended stock. What do you think of the new iPad? Well, it's a beautiful device, which is exactly what everyone expected. It's a rectangle. Yeah, okay, well, okay, shaved okay. corners. I yeah, mean, it's yeah. absolutely beautiful. I, I have an iPad. I love it. And I think this new one is going to be a huge upgrade. Uh, that said, the reason the stock didn't move on the news is because it was exactly what everyone expected. And, you know, exact expectations don't exactly change stock prices. So, 
I'm so old, I still remember the iPad too. I mean, this- <laughs> back in my day. Um, so, you know, in terms of you, you, you look at tablets, you look at PCs, one of the, the narratives that Apple executives uh, are pushing is this notion that when you combine those two, that um, you know, Apple is really the largest PC maker in the world because they're they're looking ahead to the post PC era. Um, uh, James, Which I know is some great marketing, by the way. Well, I mean, it's a smart strategy. <laughs> it's a smart strategy for any company. But James, I know you have a lot of Apple devices in your house. I mean, when you when you think about the post PC era, and I don't think anyone disputes that we're headed in that direction. Um, what are some companies you think could benefit well, from? Chris, that? I think this whole post PC era is overblown. I mean, these are still computer devices. The big difference is, do they have a battery or do mm-hmm. they run on a cord that's plugged into the wall? So initially, companies like ARM uh, got in quickly with with, with chips that, that use less power, but even Intel now, for instance, is at basically at power parity. So I think we're going to see some upstarts, but eventually the same big companies, uh, Apple, uh, Intel, are going to dominate. Ron? Yeah, we're in the early stages of the post-PC era, but let's it's coming. We're, we're right, we're right uh, getting into it. And Sounds like an art the, movement or something, doesn't it? <laughs> it it's coming, and, and the companies that are going to benefit are the companies that the remote desktop visualization companies like VMware, the, the, the telecommunications companies, Verizon, AT&T, they're going to benefit. Mm-hmm. The big data center, cloud kind of companies, uh, IBM will benefit from this. There's a lot of companies out there, and the, the people that make, uh, make the chips, uh, the quality Outcomes of the world will, will be beneficiaries as well. You agree with that, Joe? Yeah, I think EMC Holdings is one that's really interesting. They actually own most of VMware, which most people don't realize, and they also have a business that's highly successful in selling uh, hardware that's kind of the backbone of IT. So, definitely an interesting one and a cheap way to play VMware. Uh, fairly or unfairly, Apple has huge expectations. It's a company that has managed to beat those expectations over the certainly over the past five six years, um, but. They really do have high expectations, and already one of the narratives for this week was, okay, well, what's next? So this this iPad that was unveiled, it was as Joe said, very much expected. There were there was no sort of added wow factor. When you look at this company, Joe, what is the next thing that investors should be looking at? Is it iPhone five? Is it at the long uh, discussed and rumored Apple Television set? Is it yet another version of the iPad? What do you think? I think iPhone five is the real story here. It's going to be a huge winner for them, and I think Ron's probably going to talk about Apple TV. Uh, we were talking about it earlier, but yeah, I do think iPhone 5 is going to be a massive success for them, and I think the big challenge for them going forward is just keeping people excited about what are becoming progressively smaller incremental upgrades with each phone and each tablet. And you know, over time, it's going to be tough to justify these little slight improvements, convincing people to go out and pay another $700 for an iPad when, frankly, you know, my original one still works just fine. James? I would use Joe's very logic about these minor upgrades and say that's why Apple TV could be the, the sort of make-or-break event if you're an investor in Apple, because the, the, the iPhone and the iPad already sort of have established uh, trajectories, whereas the TV is, is sort of a big thing. Now, the TV, TV is a long-time ownership device, so Apple's challenge is going to be to plan obsolescence into that. In other words, if I'm going to have a TV for 10 or 15 years, I hold mine forever, um, you know these little whiz bang features that seem so cool now will very quickly become outdated. Yeah, Ron. I mean, we were talking earlier. You look at just the television market as it exists today. It is a market. First of all, it's a mature market. Second of all, um, there's not really the kind of pricing power that companies have with televisions that they do maybe with mobile phones and that sort of thing. It, it seems like that would be 
a, a, a pretty significant challenge for Apple going in, don't you think? Yes, but I think Apple has uh, that, that fan base, and they also have the ability to make things that are just a little bit better. So when the Apple TV finally does come along, and it's your entertainment hub, and it's your also your computer, and it has the ability for you to, to do all these things in a way that Apple can seem like they only can do, people will pay up for that. And to, prices come down over time, as they always do. But I think the pricing will be there initially. To your other question, I don't know which one of these things is coming first, but I think what's great for all Apple shareholders is that they're all coming, whether it's the next iPad, the next mm-hmm. phone, the next TV, um, and that's going to give Apple the growth they need um, for the stock to, to be worth owning. Uh, let's close on the stock. Joe, uh, obviously, it's a stock that for shareholders over the last few years, uh, and I'm not one of them, and I don't think you are either. Unfortunately, not. <laughs> um, uh, it's made those folks a lot of money. Uh, when you look at the valuation of this company, would you buy at today's stock price? Well, I'm bitter, so I'm going to say no. <laughs> but no. You have to invest based on emotion, after Absolutely. all. Absolutely, yeah. that, that, that strategy always works for investors. Yeah. Well, kidding aside, I'm not a fan of the stock right here, and I'm one of the few people in the office, or seemingly on the planet, where that's the case. <laughs> I think that it's going to be a lot more difficult to resell uh, resell items than people expect. I don't think that a lot of these devices are recurring revenue sources like a lot of bulls seem to think they are, and that three to five years from now we're going to be wondering where the growth is, and they're really going to be stagnating. But you know, right now nobody seems to care about three to five years from now. Ron. A million dollar portfolio came to the Apple game a little late. We we bought the stock and recommended the stock at four hundred and eighty dollars a share. Um, our model shows that if the company can grow revenues eleven percent over the next five years uh, and hold margins constant, that the stock's worth six hundred and twenty five dollars a share, which is fifteen percent upside from where we are now. It's not a home run, but there's still some upside left. James, yeah. fair to say that if Apple issues a dividend, you're automatically in. I'm uh, not automatically. No, I, I have not, but it would make my day. Uh, I, uh, I have not run a model on Apple, but I would not bet against it either. On Thursday, Starbucks announced it will begin selling its own single-serve coffee maker later this year. On Friday, shares of Starbucks hit an all-time high, while shares of Green Mountain Coffee Roasters opened down 15%. Ron, uh, Green Mountain uh, is a stock that has had a, a pretty amazing run over the mm. last 10, 12 years. Uh, it's a long-time recommended stock here at The Motley Fool. Uh, when you look at this move by Starbucks, um, and Green Mountain has really made their money off of those K-Cups and the, the Keurig machine, how much is this move by Starbucks going to hurt a company like Green Mountain, and how much is it going to help Starbucks? It's just one more nail <laughs> in the Green Mountain coffin. It you know the patents come off the K cups in September, I believe, uh, and now Starbucks is introducing a competing machine. Now it's a little bit different. The, the Starbucks machine goes over after the high pressure, like the espresso drinks, where Keurig is more focused on the lower pressure coffee drinks. But it'll still have the single serve. But it will coffee. still have the single serve. So it is. It's a pretty big competitive force. Um, the the new Starbucks machine will really compete directly with the Nestle, the Nespresso machine, because that's more of an espresso maker. But there's no doubt about it that it hurts uh, Green Mountain and the stock selling off appropriately. Is Starbucks it, just the Google of coffee; it steamrolls over whatever <laughs> it, they, it wants to. It's so well, far, yeah. Well, I mean, to James's point, <clears throat> is Starbucks in a position with this machine similar to the way Amazon is with the Kindle? Where they can essentially sell this machine either at a at a slight loss or or maybe even just break even, and they can look to make money off of the coffee. Are they in that position? Well, it's clearly a razor razor blade model. I mean, those K cups and, and continually. I mean, I I own a Keurig machine and I'm 
constantly shelling out money for those boxes of K-Cups. And yep. Starbucks will, will do the same thing. Uh, Joe, in terms of Green Mountain stock, uh, it, as recently as six months ago, it was over one ten a share. Uh, Friday morning, it opened, you know, somewhere in the in the low fifties. Is this a value opportunity, a value play, or the classic value trap? Well, I'd say value trap, but to look like a value trap, you still have to look cheap, which I don't think it is. Uh, Even knocked down the way it is, you don't think it's cheap? No, it's been an amazing high flyer and a great story, and it's got a great product, but they have so much competition coming online, both on the K-Cup side and with new devices, with the likes of Starbucks coming on. And to be honest, there are some pretty valid questions about their accounting that have been bounced around in the press pretty mm-hmm. pretty thoroughly. And when you put those things together, I think you could probably just find some exciting growth stories elsewhere with fewer question marks. Coming up, some shocking news. A recent internet IPO is having trouble turning a profit. Details next. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in the studio with Joe Maker, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, got a new station to welcome Money Radio 1200 KPSF in Palm Springs, California. Money Radio. Money Radio. I like that. And it's Palm Springs, so maybe a field trip is in order. Uh, Shares of internet music company Pandora down more than 20% this week after the company missed on earnings and said it's not going to be profitable for at least another year. (laughs) Is that bad? They're honest. They're honest. Is it a big deal if a company loses a quarter of its value in one day? Uh, Kind of. Listen, I I don't know how they monetize this business model. It's 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 the same story with a lot of these types of companies. They do have ad revenue. I don't know how they monetize the subscription part of this. So I know a lot of people that use Pandora. I don't know many people that pay for it. They're not going to be profitable for a while. Still, almost a two billion dollar company. It just doesn't make sense for me as an investment. Um, how long can they do this? Because right now, about ninety percent of their Revenue is coming from advertising. Obviously, they want to get more subscribers. Yeah, but, make it up on volume. But how? <laughs> how much longer? I mean, when they, they, I mean, when they, they I say we're not going to be profitable for a year, they've got the money to to drag this out and continue for a while because they just went public, obviously. But you have rising content costs, as we're seeing in, in all these kinds of businesses like Netflix. Um, so that's hurting them, and, and is one of the reasons actually they're not going to be profitable for a while. But they do have forty-seven million active users. So theoretically, you say to yourself. There must be a way we can monetize this. Surely there is a way. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it sounds very 1999 price to click. Yeah, um, Joe. Two years from now, is Pandora a standalone company? And if not, who do you think owns them? I think it is. It's probably just lurching along and desperate, and <laughs> maybe selling some equity to stay alive. This week, Qualcomm, the mobile phone chip maker, announced a share buyback plan of up to $4 billion in stock. And James, uh, you'll be happy to know Qualcomm also increasing its dividend by 16%. Um, I mean, we, we've talked about this before, this sort of perception of tech companies that, frankly, seems a little unfair because you've got companies like Qualcomm and Microsoft and Intel, they all pay a dividend. And it's almost like, hey, once you start, if you're a tech company, once you start paying a dividend, you're no longer cool. Well, enough of the cool guys do it, Chris, and then it'll become <laughs> cool. You know, and, and and I'm not quivering about Qualcomm just specifically yet. It's I think 1.6 percent yield, and we used to have checking accounts paying more than that probably. But but they are noble, and, and the more yeah, the more Intel's, the more Cisco's, the more Qualcomm's that do this. I mean, tech has evolved as an ecosystem. It's not all high growth, and that's okay. So so that's what the message uh, Qualcomm sending out is is really proclaiming. Joe, what do you think of Qualcomm's business? I own it. I love it. I think they're one of the big winners in the whole smartphone post-PC world, and it's two reasons, really. One is that they're 
basically becoming the Intel of mobile chips. And the second is that they own so much IP that they get licensing fees on every smartphone sold. So whether it's Android or Apple, they're going to get like a 3 to 5% rip on that phone. So it's just producing amazing margins, and I'd like to thank them for the dividend. <laughs> uh, guys, is Amazon going to start getting into producing original television programming? Because this week, Joe Lewis, a new executive at Amazon, um, updated his profile on LinkedIn to include the job title, VP of Original Television Programming at Amazon. Um, it was quickly changed uh, once, I'm guessing, Jeff Bezos or <laughs> someone else at Amazon found out about that. Joe, what do you think? Is this? Does, I'm an Amazon shareholder. Should I be excited or terrified that they're possibly going down this road? Somewhere in between. This is not a good move for them. Amazon's the best retailer on the planet, but this is two degrees of separation away from their core business. They're trying to prop up the you know movie and distribution business, and that's really kind of a secondary issue for them. I'd rather they just keep focusing on what they can do very well and building around that. So, namely, Kindles and just the logistics of getting goods to people quickly and in a cheap way. Ron? I agree with that, but Jeff Bezos is not a retailer or a merchant. He's a big thinker. He's got a lot of ideas. He's the not co- a Hollywood The company is going to take itself in many, many different directions. This is, looks like perhaps one. It, I think, will be small. They're not going to turn themselves into some big, huge studio. Um, I agree with Joe, though. They, they've got to stick to their knitting. James? Yeah. The traditional uh, uh, model of content creation is really not that profitable. The distribution has been a little better, and that's what Amazon does. So the secret to them is going to be really keeping their costs down if they do make content. Uh, Finally, guys, this week, Fender Musical Instruments Corp., the maker of legendary guitars played by the likes of Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton, filed to go public. They're looking to raise $200 million in an IPO. what do you think, Ron? You buying? I mean, they got sales in 85 countries. I, I would have to learn a little bit more about the valuation. Um, I guess they're going to be using a lot of this money to pay down debt, which, down which debt, is yeah. good. Um, I would want to see if there's any uh, shareholders that are selling to get out, or is is the company selling the stock? Um, it'd be a fun to own. It'd be. I would want to see what the uh, the sh- the actual certificate looks like. I'm sure it would look pretty cool, but. You know, I'm not in there. <laughs> Strong buy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, everybody loves guitars. I, I think that's a relatively safe statement. So let's go in the other direction. If you could eliminate one musical instrument from the planet, what would you go with, Ron? <laughs> my brother in law is going to kill me, but I'm going with the tuba. The tuba. tuba. Okay. James? That was number two on my list. Uh, this, you, you're going to offend anybody when you, when you say this, but maybe the screechy human voice. I mean, there's just so many songs <laughs> that are ruined, ruined by vocals. They would just be better instrumental. Joe? I'm going with the triangle. It's pretty low impact. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm going with kazoo. I'm going what with triangle. I'm going with the kazoo. kazoo. Steve Broido? I'm going piccolo. What, is it, what does it do? Who does it help? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Joe Mager, James Early, Ron Gross. Guys, we'll see you later in the show. Coming up, are we headed for a world without cash and coins? Our guest is David Woolman, author of the new book, The End of Money. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Yes, money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. So what would happen if you stopped using cash altogether? And is it time for us to start thinking about moving beyond cash? David Woolman is a contributing editor at Wired Magazine and the author of the new book, The End of Money, Counterfeiters, Preachers, Techies, Dreamers, and the Coming Cashless Society. David, thanks for being here. My pleasure. What do you have against cash, man? Oh, well, for starters, it's filthy. I mean, you know, next to uh, sneezing in someone's face or grabbing a handrail on the bus uh, just after someone else, you know, this is like one of the the final ways that we 
transmit our communicable goodies. So aside from germs, what do you see as the big problems with cash? Well, first of all, cash is the currency of crime, or at least a lot of crime, right? I'm not talking about Bernie Madoff, per se, but, uh, you know, there's 10,000 bank robberies in the United States in 2009, 2010. That's just people chasing after the paper stuff, right? Um, so, so that's a big cost, not just having to deal with the cost of the robbery or an attempted robbery and, uh, you know, PTSD um, counseling for employees, but, you know, then you're into paying the cops to go after each of these crooks, and then you're paying to prosecute and incarcerate. Meanwhile, it costs society at large, if you zoom out a little further, cash management and cash logistics for, uh, you know, for the public and for the private sector, we're looking at about $150 billion a year. And that's just moving, storing, securing, inspecting, shredding, re-inspecting, re-delivering, redesigning the currency. You know, it doesn't include the cost of crime or it doesn't include, let's say, the expense that DEA has to shell out to go after cash-enabled, uh, you know, uh, transactions in the drug trade or... Uh, you know, let alone the war on drugs in South America, because, you know, most, I think it's like 65, 70% of most $100 bills, you know, they live overseas, uh, stuffed in briefcases owned by mobsters and, you know, uh, under the mattresses of uh, drug dealers in Latin America, right? So that would be a huge savings if we were to, you know, not necessarily get rid of all cash, but even just outlaw the $100 bill. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with David Wallman about his new book, The End of Money, Counterfeiters, Preachers, Techies, Dreamers, and the Coming Cashless Society. Um, What do you see as the best alternative right now to cash? Well, right now, uh, you know, everybody in industry is saying if you're not talking about mobile, nobody wants to talk to you. And so, uh, like in a lot of industries, really, talking about the mobile phone is much more than just a means of reaching out to talk to other people or to surf the web. Um, So-called mobile money and mobile banking tools, uh, you know, they are being rolled out tremendously fast, and they uh, they are literally changing the world. I mean, for those of us in wealthier countries... I think they're, especially for someone like me, you know, I'm interested in technology, Google Wallet, PayPal Mobile, these things are, are kind of cool, and I'm enchanted by the idea that the, the friction in my financial life will be reduced that much more, and cash is going to be that much more obsolete. That's, that's cool and exciting. Where this stuff becomes absolutely world-changing is in developing countries where, um, you know, people are stuck only using cash. And that uh, creates all these problems of uh, being excluded from the formal economy. They can't establish a bank account, which means they can't brace against financial shock. They can't um, accumulate the kind of meager savings they need to make the investments to climb out of poverty, right? So not just buying someone a new pair of shoes, but buying a moped so that you could um, commute to a a factory for a job or by, uh, you know, enrolling a daughter in school 10 months from now or buying some farm equipment, right? If you're stuck using cash, it's just so turbo liquid. There are all these claims being made on your cash at home. You know, if you don't lose it in a flood or a fire or an earthquake, then, you know, your drunk uncle is going to pilfer from your stash or, you know, a legitimate claim from a neighbor down the street who needs it badly for, for aspirin for a granny. And so, you know, because that cash, you know, you just can't save as easily. And so economists and development experts are really fired up about these tools. And, uh, you know, 
throwing a lot of money at the startup effort in the developing world to get these programs rolling. Uh, and there are a few countries that I talk about where, uh, you know, they're, uh, it's really changing uh, the way that everyone is doing business. You know, in Kenya, it's like 17 million people are using this M-Pesa program for sending money back and forth. The traditional banking industry in Kenya has 5 million customers. It took them a century to get there. Well, you're getting right into sort of the sweet spot uh, for us here at The Motley Fool because uh, this is a show about investing. Um, and so reading a book like yours um, and talking about a cashless society, um, here at The Motley Fool, we start to think about, all right, let's, let's get into some of the companies who might be benefiting from this, who might be against this. Um, and I'm going to spot you up with a, a few different sort of groups of companies. And, and let's start with mobile, because you already touched on that. Because, um, you know, with eBay's PayPal unit, um, with even with a company like Apple, which um, has $98 billion in cash on its, uh, on its balance sheet, and if it wanted to, could, could probably deploy uh, some of that cash to go after sort of the, the, the mobile payment piece of this. When you look out uh, at the companies involved in mobile payment, who are the ones that you look at as really being at the forefront, really leading this movement? Well, one thing to watch for is so-called NFC or near-field communication, essentially a little radio antenna embedded in a device, probably a phone or something just like it, that can um, you know, send information to um, a receiving terminal, uh, the item formerly known as cash register, right? And so there's a lot of interest in embedding NFC, and it's happening now, you know, in our mobile devices. Um, so I think NFC and, and companies talking about NFC that's certainly something to watch. Uh, I think another area is is companies that want to take take a swipe at, pun intended, sort of the middleman fees and uh, Square, started by uh, you know Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey, is another one to watch. They're rolling out some really interesting tools. They right now they have a hardware item that you plug into a phone, and it means that I can run your card. Uh, so that you and I can settle up after I covered the dinner bill instead of me having to have like an actual um, credit card terminal. Uh, so that's an interesting idea. You're going to pick up the tab when we go out to dinner? <laughs> In theory. depends how the rest of the dinner you go. <laughs> so, uh, well, no, I would only pick it up for about 90 seconds until I charge your card <laughs> for your half. Uh, that's one area to watch. You know, Apple, you have to watch them. They have, uh, there's a lot of uh, sort of, well, with Apple, you have to watch them. There's a lot of buzz about this thing called iWallet. No one knows exactly what it is, but I know there's a number of patents filed. But uh, I think it would be uh, bizarre, frankly, if they didn't move into this space after the iPhone has done uh, has like taken over the world. Uh, some other companies to watch, you know, PayPal has such an early mover advantage in this world. Uh, and what I mean by that, for example, I'm currently in Washington, D.C. for some, some media stuff. I stayed with my brother and his wife last night uh, outside of town, and they were selling a table that night that they they were selling it uh, via Craigslist, right? And so my sister-in-law is going to take that payment in cash because she said to me, I'm not going to accept any form of payment other than cash from a stranger, from someone I don't know. Totally uh, legitimate, everyday person kind of concern, right? Well, PayPal's tremendous success was convincing people that this is a secure way, at least online, to send and receive money from people you don't know. 
And so I think PayPal's move into mobile, they, they have that trust that I think tomorrow's mobile money startup with a name you've never heard of, you know, it, it has it has a trust um, hurdle that is higher than PayPal's, right? Because trust is so essential when it comes to dealing with people's money. It's one thing if AT&T drops my call. It's another thing if a mobile money service drops and loses my money. You know, then I'm just going to go racing back to my traditional forms of payment. If uh, if I'm really into tax evasion, that's cash. If I'm okay with Visa and MasterCard and American Express, then maybe I'm going to go back to, to credit cards. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with David Woolman about his new book, The End of Money, Counterfeiters, Preachers, Techies, Dreamers, and the Coming Cashless Society. What surprised you the most when you were working on the book? You know, early on, I thought this would kind of be... Uh, something between a valentine and a eulogy for those rectangular slips of paper and those little metal plugs. But the reality is, you know, even though cash is, to a large extent, at the edges of our everyday lives already, when you talk about the the origins of cash and its potential demise, it really speaks to all of the fundamental concerns that people have about money and about what is money and what holds value and the stability of the national currency or the euro crisis, uh, even things like, you know, what does it mean to be American? You know, this is one of the last physical touchstones of our national identity. You know, someone told me getting rid of the greenback is is like burning the flag on the steps of of the Capitol. And it was like, you know, I knew I was going to strike a nerve, but I had no idea that it would be uh, sort of full-body convulsions with this. And and that is because you know it it just touches everything. You know, from that that time when you're a child and you lose your first tooth and you reach under the pillow for a coin, to the you know the question of do I hold dollars? Do I hold gold? You know, what what will make my life? Uh, more stable when it comes to, you know, providing for my family 30 years from now. And you would never really think that scrutinizing a $1 bill and the question of uh, kind of the magic that gives it value, you know, th- those questions lead you down those avenues. And, you know, that was quite surprising. And, and of course, as a writer, that was, that was a delight, right, because now you're sort of digging into some meaty questions. David, we're going to wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold. Let's start with buy, sell, or hold, the future of the penny. Sell. So. You're saying if money, if we go to a cashless society, penny is the first thing to go. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, okay, I hear you, I hear you. Maybe I should, um, maybe I should recast because, as one uh, coin collector just told me recently, uh, I would love to see a cashless society. Uh, my entire inventory is just going to shoot up in value. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are websites and businesses built on this. Buy, sell, or hold the future of bartering. Buy. You, you had to pause there for yeah, a moment. Yeah, I-, I did, you know, because a lot of it is people uh, trading massages for freelance graphic design work. But if you actually want to, like, pay your t- utility bill or fill your car uh, tank with gasoline, you're going to need good old uh, U.S. sovereign currency. So I get that. On the other hand, I see a real appetite out there for these barter systems, as person-to-person transactions. And what's amazing, you know, what's wonderful about the Internet is now you, you don't need the double coincidence of wants of barter in the uh, prehistoric age sense of it, right? So you've got a lot of potatoes, I've got a lot of furs, you need what I have, 
I need what you have, great coincidence, let's trade. Well, now you can have a central clearinghouse of what everybody's offering up in this barter exchange. And so you can just kind of log on and see what's available. And so, you know, I don't know if they're going to take over the dollar ever. I doubt that. But I think um, people like that, uh, that proposition. And I think, you know, the same way you see farmers markets popping up everywhere. I think um, that speaks to people's longing for, like, a little bit more sense of community, a little less of a connection to... Uh, to a Wall Street bank thousands of miles away, and I just don't see them as very harmful. I don't know if buying that uh, hypothetical stock is going to be a windfall per se, but I just don't. I see them as kind of innocuous. Buy, sell, or hold. Listeners using cash to buy your new book, The End of Money. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I I love cash's uh, you know purchasing power like everybody else, but it's been really uh, fun and sort of a wild ride to subject cash to a little more scrutiny than it's used to. Doesn't that just make you part of the problem, David? (laughs) It might be. It might be. The new book is The End of Money, Counterfeiters, Preachers, Techies, Dreamers, and the Coming Cashless Society. David Wallman, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. If I had my money, my honey would be here with me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me once again in the studio, Joe Mager, James Early, and Ron Gross. Guys, that time, once again, it's time for the stocks that are on our radar. We will bring in our man from the other side of the glass, Steve Broido, to uh, ask a question about your specific stock. So, Ron, I hope just a modicum of research went into your your stock this week. Well, it's on my radar. It's a recent Hidden Gems recommendation. It's uh, BJ's Restaurant, ticker BJRI, a chain of moderately priced casual restaurants, Mm -hmm. about 115 of them, half of which are in California. So, a ton of expansion potential. Doesn't look that cheap to me, but that's where that expansion potential may factor in, so i got to do some work there. Steve, a question? Sure, I've always understood restaurants to be challenging investments. Give me one company, one restaurant that's really soared that you can think of at the top of your head. Chipotle, Buffalo Wild Wings. Have you heard of a little company called McDonald's? Nicely played, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, just to be clear, you're not putting McDonald's, sort of the fast casual, that's not in the same no, category. No, it's not in the same category. No, this would be uh, Applebee's, Chili's, maybe Friday's, uh, those kinds. A little more upscale than that. Ticket Average ticket price is a little higher. Okay. James Early, your stock this Chris, week? I will go with GlaxoSmithKline. Again, just on my radar, this is one that I backed out of an income investor years ago because of concerns that the chemical-based drug discovery method is really showing diminishing returns, almost like the blockbuster movie business. It's just hard to make a big, profitable drug these days. 5% yield, though, and Glaxo actually has one of the better patent cliffs, meaning smaller patent cliffs in the industry. So it also makes fiber choice wafers and, and degree deodorant, which I use both of. Fiber choice wafers? Yeah. Inulin is a ground up acacia tree. Uh, yummy. I have no Sweet. idea what that is. Is there anybody still out there? <laughs> Steve, question? Is there anything companies, uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, can do to insulate them from the patent expiration stuff that comes on? I know with <sighs> a lot of the statin drugs, they... Yes, that's, that's that what the, the deodorant the is big, for. Steve, that was big a question. sharp question. Yeah, that is the very big question, Steve. Uh, I'm on Crestor, by the way. <laughs> they, can, uh, they, they can either buy, buy competitors, and hopefully they don't overpay, or that they can shrink gracefully, or they can just try to double down on their own research efforts. But that's going to be the deciding question. Does that work? Yeah, sounds great to me. 
Joe Mager, your stock this week? Goldman Sachs. I own it. It's a recommendation and inside value. I think it has a lot of upside, and I think that the Greek crisis kind of fading into the rearview really speaks to how we are not actually falling off a cliff in the financial markets. I think you're going to see the premium people are willing to put on Goldman and its earnings pop over the next couple of years as M&A activity picks up. People relax about where stocks are going, and it has a lot of upside. I mean, you're swimming with sharks with it, but I'm going to swim with the biggest shark in the pool. Steve? If you had to explain to someone in an elevator what Goldman Sachs did without using the phrase investment bank, how would you do it? <laughs> they help investors allocate capital. Okay. So they help companies go public. That's a big thing for them. They help companies uh, make acquisitions and they providing funding for folks. Trading. Stuff. Yeah. And they also do a lot of asset management. So they run mutual funds and the like as well. So, Steve, I'm going to put you on the spot. We got Goldman Sachs, we got Glaxo, we've got BJ's Restaurants. You're an investor. You're you're certainly a more active investor than I am. What what's I would the think Goldman Sachs. I mean, I don't know a ton about them. That's what makes me nervous about Goldman Sachs. Is it's hard to explain or understand what they physically do all day. But I know they do a lot of different stuff, and it sounds like a promising field right now. All right. So in the two minutes we have left, um, Ron Gross, what's we haven't done this in a while. What is something you are working on? You're running million dollar portfolio. Something you're working on in the next week or two? Well, uh, and I also run our devalue service here, and so we're building out that portfolio right now. We started from scratch, and we're we're slowly adding stocks to the portfolio, and that is going to be a big focus of rolling out my next stock in the hopefully the coming week or two. Just on that note, what what separates deep value from just straight up value? Is it just a, is it just simply a metric of how beaten down a stock is? Is it, it a valuation? That's a thing? good way to think of it. I've heard Joe refer to it as dirty value. Um, <laughs> it's stocks that are really really cheap and there's usually a reason for that. Um, and our job is to analyze to see how, how significant that reason is. Just from a branding standpoint, I think I like dirty value better, but that, <laughs> that may <laughs> just be how my mind works. James, something you're working uh, Chris, on? Chris with low low checking account yields and, and things like that, a lot of people might be interested in capturing yields from dividend stocks without a lot of the risk. And that's where things called options collars can help. And I'm, I'm researching potential options collars for income investor uh, picks. Okay. Joe Maker, what's something you're working on in uh, Motley Fool Inside Value? Oh, my bachelor party is this weekend, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not expecting nice. to be very productive in the next few days. Is that why your brother is in town, Ben? Absolutely. Ah, absolutely. Nice. Joe's uh, brother, Ben Maker, uh, sitting in on the taping this week. Yes. Uh, so, I guess what I'll be working on in the latter part it's of the next hangover. Week. Yeah, I'm uh, trying to whittle down our scorecard a little bit. Uh, stocks have come up a good bit, and there's some marginal stocks out there that I've recommended before that are kind of coasting up to near fair value, and I think I'll probably just be taking profits on those and rolling them into opportunities I'm more excited about. Uh, just in the 30 seconds we have left, uh, what is planned for your bachelor party? Do you know, or is it? Is I it, don't it, actually is, know. Tim Hansen from Motley Fool Asset Management planned the whole thing, so I'm just showing up, and we'll see what happens. All right, mm-hmm. drop us an email, folks. Radio at fool.com. We want to know your best bachelor party or bachelorette party story. Whether you were there, whether it happened to you, radio at fool.com, drop us an email. We'll see how it compares to whatever is in store for Joe Mager. Joe Mager, James Early, Ron Gross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Thank you, Chris. Chris. Thanks to our guest this week, David Woolman. For video highlights, you can go to fooltv.com. That's it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 